Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 12. Remember that if you have questions that uh, you want me to answer on this podcast, then you can just send them to me via email, that's michael at scientifictriathlon.com, michael with a K, or on Facebook through my website scientifictriathlon.com, you can just post them through the messenger widget down in the bottom right corner of the screen. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have a stack that makes the world's quietest indoor bike trainers. They use magnets rather than resistance flywheels, and that also means there's no wear and tear on the bike, so it's always race ready. It folds up very neatly, and they have three different models with different features at different price points, so there's an option for everybody. The Halcyon is uh, the new smart trainer model, and uh, that is the one that I'm using, and uh, and it's great. And with whatever model you go for, you can get 20% off with the promo code that Triathlon Show, all one word, all caps. And a big thank you to Roka that makes the world's premier triathlon apparel, including wetsuits, tri suits, swim skins, buoyancy shorts, etc. And actually, I want to highlight the buoyancy shorts or neoprene shorts because that is something that I'm really becoming. I'm getting on the bandwagon of neoprene shorts. I just find that uh, the amount of quality and how you can sustain the quality of a workout, it's so improved. I can keep swimming well after 4,500 meters, whereas before I would definitely not be swimming well at that point of a, of a workout any longer. I would just be be struggling to to just get through the set and and get get home, get showered and get home uh, but uh, now with the with use, using the shorts more often not every single workout but a lot more it allows me to get more quality strokes in every single week it also allows me to recover better and be not quite as tired for the bike or run session that I will do in the afternoon because I will have saved my legs a little bit. So I'm really a big fan of uh, of the Roka Sim neoprene shorts. They're really great and uh, you can find them and any other product on roka.com or roka.eu, roka.uk if you are in the EU or UK. And you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps. All right, so let's get into today's questions. The first question comes from uh, John Hayes from Springboro, Ohio. He writes, hi, Michael. My question is around differences and preferences between training with heart rate zones versus power zones. For example, if I'm doing a zone 2 running or cycling workout based on power zones, my heart rate is higher than my heart rate zone 2. I may be thinking about it all wrong, but uh, to me it seems like I'm trying to train my cardiovascular system so a heart rate based zone 2 run or ride would better align with how my heart is actually working versus training based on the power zones. Curious to get your thoughts on this. Thank you for the question, John. It's a really good one. And uh, I do not think that you are thinking about it all wrong. In fact, I, I would definitely tend to agree with uh, with what you're saying there. It's uh, training to heart rate in those easier aerobic endurance sessions, so zone two uh, training mostly. That's a really good way to make sure that, uh, first of all, that you don't go too hard in your easy training. And also... To, that you stay at or below your aerobic threshold. Of course, this depends a bit on the accuracy of uh, how the zones are set, and we'll get into that a bit later. 
but uh, but that's important as well. Uh, so because the power versus the heart rate zones, as you have noticed, and as anybody will have noticed, there's not a perfect overlap there. And I do think that the heart rate zones are more indicative, as you say, of whether you're really training your aerobic endurance and really focusing on that uh, those aerobic developments staying at or below the aerobic threshold which we want to do in these zone two workouts and it also finally uh, another interesting point you could do this the other way around of course as well so uh, so it's this is not the biggest reason to prefer heart rate zones in the zone two workouts but it does give you a great very interesting way to track how you are improving uh, so and by that i mean that if you are consistently holding your heart rate in a certain quite narrow range then you can just check how much uh, power do you produce at this given heart rate and how does that uh, track and trend over time this is a slow process so you shouldn't expect to see any visible differences in in a few weeks or even a few months time but when you look back at your training from a year ago for example you can start to see some very positive aerobic adaptations if you have done the training and you've you've been diligent and you've done the training right with good structure. And this is definitely not a vanity metric. Like there are vanity metrics out there. This one is not. This is legitimately useful. Triathlon is a very, very, very aerobic sport. So seeing improvements in how your power uh, compares to your heart rate at a given heart rate, that is very useful. So... There are some caveats to this, and uh, that is, as I mentioned before, the accuracy of the zones, and that goes for both power and heart rate. Now, if you have done a lab test, which is uh, which is good, although that too has some problems, depending on how it is done, uh, and you've followed the recommendations from the lab for before the test, like avoiding caffeine or other stimulants, then your heart rate should be quite well controlled. And actually, uh, if you're doing a lab test, your heart rate might be the more accurate system of zones compared to the power especially if you're not doing it on your own bike with your own power meter uh, so that's something to think about uh, and and you can probably rely on those heart rate zones quite well even though there is of course day-to-day variations in heart rate but that's true for power as well so uh, so then you're, you're pretty fi- you're fine to use the heart rate zones and uh, it's pretty much all systems go uh, but uh, for field tests which is common and uh, most the majority of listeners probably will use field test but uh, rarely go and do a lab test it becomes quite questionable how accurate your heart rate zones are uh, and that is unless you do what some recommend uh, alan cousins is an example that springs to mind and for good reason he does recommend doing a one hour test on the bike to find your ftp and functional threshold and fthr functional threshold power and heart rate Uh, So I've actually thought about uh, having Alan back on the show because I would really like to discuss that in more detail because he has some great points about why why that is better than a 20-minute test. But if you are doing a classic 20-minute FTP test, the accuracy and precision of taking 95% of the average heart rate to be your threshold heart rate and then setting zones based on that uh, I'm not sure what what it is, but I'm pretty sure that it's not very good. <laughs> and I, I would guess that it is much more accurate for power, and that your power zones are going to be much better than your heart rate zones. Although, as discussed before, that too is not necessarily completely accurate. I talked about this in a in a previous Q and A episode a bit how the the FTP does not necessarily correlate with your maximum lactate steady state, especially not unless you do the five-minute all-out segment before the 20-minute test. 
if you don't do that five minute all out, then you're most definitely going to get an inflated FTP compared to your maximum lactate steady state. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked here, but uh, the point here is that uh, those heart rate zones they they are not necessarily the most accurate. But then again, it is the best that we have, of course. We have to do something to estimate them. And uh, so you just need to try to control for it as best as possible in the test situation. So I would recommend that you you avoid caffeine and other stimulants before. You try to control the temperature. So, for example, you do the test indoors, but you have a fan and uh, those sorts of things in a not a too cool and not a too warm uh, ambient temperature. Those, I guess, are two of the main things that you really can control, stimulants and the temperature and having a fan uh, in terms of an FTP test. On the run, you're relying a bit more on the outdoor environment. So just try to perhaps do it on a day when when it's a fairly normal day for whatever you, wherever you live. Uh, so, And then the thing that you would also really want to do in this situ- situation when you're doing field tests and not lab tests is you should be having a look at uh, many different field tests. So let's say that you, you might do five or six field tests, five or six FTP tests uh, in a given year. That That is quite common for the athletes that I coach. That tends to be around the number that many of them do, not all of them. Uh, but then you start can start to see trends. What is typically the average heart rate for that 20-minute segment? So you might have one outlier. It is very common to have uh, one test or maybe two tests where two tests where the heart rate is significantly lower or higher than what it typically is. But then most of the tests, once you have uh, a sample of them, they will cluster around a fairly narrow range. And then you can just simply take the average of uh, that cluster and consider that the the heart rate number that you will base your training zones on. And then the accuracy of your zones will most definitely increase. So what I'm saying here is that you should definitely not always just update your zones solely based on the latest test you've done. You should look at all your tests and see, uh, consider the context of this latest test and see see where the average typically is and use that as a starting point. And then consider if there are reasons that you may want to, to update it based on the latest test or not. So for example, if you're doing a test and uh, the summer heat is coming on, maybe your heart rate is five beats per minute higher than it has been all winter and spring. But that might be actually the temperature that you will be training in throughout summer. So then I would say that there is a case for actually updating your heart rate zones to reflect that change in environment. And then, you, of course, you would need to do that again come uh, come autumn. And uh, so I think that's mostly about it. I think this is something I have been thinking about personally in my coaching as well, to actually... For the athletes that I coach that use power meters, I tend to to always prescribe workouts based on power. So I just add an endurance ride in zone two, if that's what I do. Then the structured workout part in training peaks, for those of you familiar with training peaks, you'll know what I mean. That is always power-based. But actually, I've been thinking that maybe it would be better to, to give those zone two endurance rides as heart rate-based workouts rather than zone one. I've had many conversations with my athletes, so they know that they should all also check their heart rate and uh, try to keep that in check uh, so so they don't rely solely on the power numbers definitely not but but actually it's uh, it's something that i think could be quite useful to do more systematically actually being diligent with following 
heart rate rather than power in these aerobic endurance workouts zone two and even zone one although zone one i would say the most important thing is rpe because zone one the purpose of that is recovery active recovery so then you want to feel that you're actually actively recovering and uh, heart rate might not necessarily show that because your muscles might be sore so then just how you feel is going to be the greatest greatest indicator of if you're doing it at the right intensity or not anyway uh, thanks for your question john i hope this answers it let's move on to the next one which is from claire stewart in las vegas who writes michael i'm new to your podcast but i have really enjoyed your guests and the information provided i usually listen as i travel or as i work out in the gym or on the trainer my question involves multiple events during the year and how to train for those events and avoid overtraining or overcompeting. My situation, is, my situation is that I'm a 55-year-old male that, uh, and I have, been, I have been active all my life in football, wrestling, among other sports. I retired from the coaching scene and I am now on a journey to transform myself into an endurance athlete. I've been biking and swimming for the last five years to lose weight with the idea of someday competing in a local triathlon. This year I lost 65 pounds and made my goal a reality by competing in a sprint triathlon called the Pumpkin Man here in Las Vegas. I'm still on the heavy side, weighing 280 pounds, and I'm slowly losing about 5 to 10 pounds a month through diet and exercise. Let me jump in here, Clear. First of all, congratulations. I'm really, really happy to hear about all this success. Uh, it's a great accomplishment, uh, so uh, really take pride in that. Uh, losing all that weight, completing your first triathlon, really well done. All right, so the question continues. Doing my first triathlon got me excited about competing more this next year. I used a 20-week training plan by Phil Mosley to prepare for my first event, but this next year I have identified five different triathlons of sprint and Olympic distances and a couple of 5K or 10K races that I want to support because of the causes they support. I have two of the races that I want to do better in and that I would consider A races. So I'm jumping in again here uh, before we wrap up the question. But for the listeners that are not aware, uh, it's quite common in endurance sports to categorize races as A, B and C races. Where A races, that means your most important races, typically only one to three per year. And you want to do everything you can to be in peak shape and perform at your very peak for these and this includes tapering as much as needed to be fresh and ready on the start line which means that you will lose fitness for races that follow the a race of course because you might also need to recover from the a race a bit but they are the important races so that's the sacrifice that you have to make and should make b races are of secondary importance to a races but you still want to do well so you might typically reduce your training load for a few days, two to four or five days before, as a smaller, lighter version of a taper, not, not a full-on taper. So you're not really looking for that very peak fitness, but you're looking to get closer to peak fitness than uh, and not being in too deep a fatigue state that you might be in a heavy training block. And C races, they're just treated as workouts. You just train through them. All right, so uh, final part of Claire's question. Here goes. There are several tra training plans that I can purchase through training uh, peaks that uh, give me access to a coach and will allow me to prepare almost 40 weeks for my A-race, but don't take into consideration the other events that I would like to do. Should I just use the single plan and then replace some of the weekly workouts with the race events, or do I need some specialized coaching to monitor this? 
I'm really enjoying the progress and the journey of preparing for these races, and in many ways this is a great source of pride and sense of achievement as I accomplish the workouts and plan my life around these things. Hopefully my my thoughts aren't too jumbled. I would appreciate any ideas you have, and if you have previously answered this question, uh, if you can send me to one of your archived podcasts, that would be great as well. Thank you so much for all the information that you provide. It really helps me get excited and to do my workouts and see the progress and learn how my body is responding to the training input. Keep up the great work and good luck for your own personal events this next year. All right, uh, thank you so much, Clear, for this question. So uh, to repeat the question part from that last segment, the question is, there are several training plans that I can purchase through Training Peaks that give me access to a coach and will allow me to prepare almost 40 weeks for my A race, but don't take into consideration the other events that I would like to do. Should I just use the single plan and then replace some of the weekly workouts with the race events, or do I need some specialized coaching to monitor this? So to answer this, I don't really think that the question of whether to get a coach or not, that does not hinge on how to adjust a training program to include multiple races. Even if you were only going to do that one single A race this year, no other events, and however many weeks uh, plan that you have that would work perfectly for that, like let's say you have 40 weeks to train and you have a 40-week plan, no training plan is ever going to be anywhere near as uh, effective for improving your performance as a coach. And that's, of course, why there is such a big price difference between the two. Uh, because planning the training is only a very small part of the roles and responsibilities of being a coach. But uh, let me answer the question of uh, what you should do, what I would recommend you do if you do get the training plan. Uh, then first, C races are easy. Uh, any races that you have identified as C races, then yes, you train through them, you just replace a workout with that race. Ideally, you would remove a hard workout from your schedule so that you retain the balance of hard and easy work in the training plan. Now, since you have two A races, uh, I would work with the training plan. So in this example, perhaps the 40-week plan that you have uh, that you have looked at, I would work with that training plan up until the first event. And uh, then do after that first event, do only easy training for a few days or even a week if it's an Olympic and you feel that you need a week of easy training to make sure you are recovered. And I don't know how long you have between the, the races, the two A races, but let's say for argument's sake that you have eight weeks between them. Then you would simply repeat the last eight weeks or seven weeks because you you lost one week to to recovery from the race, for example. Uh, So simply repeat the last seven weeks of the plan to lead up to the second A race, assuming, of course, that it worked well the first time. B races here, they are the most uh, complicated, but uh, not too complicated. So I would, again, just remove a hard workout to make room for them. But in addition to that, in the last two to five days, depending on how important any particular B-races for you, like non-important B-races, just two or maybe three days, and more important B-races, you could take four or five days, uh, where you want to dial down the amount of intensity that you do and potentially also dial down the volume a little bit. But uh, neither of them, you you don't dial down the volume uh, a whole lot, but you do it a little bit, and you don't reduce intensity completely, but you dial it down a little bit. So let's say that in the last... uh, let's say three days before a B race, your plan calls for a six by three minutes workout, whether it's on the bike or the run, uh, six by three minutes hard, 
VO2max zone 5 intervals. Uh, then I would adjust that to do, instead of 6 times 3 minutes, you would do 4 times 3 minutes, for example. Or 5 times 2 minutes, something like that. And uh, a 30-minute tempo run that uh, is scheduled 3 days before the race, that might become 15 to 20 minutes at tempo. And so, so you see what I mean here? You, you reduce the amount of intensity, but you keep... You keep some intensity, but you reduce the amount of it to make the workout and the load lighter overall. And so you don't you keep training, you don't do too much of a taper, but it is sort of a mini taper to some extent. Volume is the same, you can you can reduce it slightly, but don't reduce it too much. So for example, if uh, you would otherwise have uh, let's say seven, eight hours in, in your training week, you might do six five five six hours instead and then of course depending on the length of the race then that might shift so you, you need to take that into account as well but but for example the if you have a an olympic race on a sunday and on average uh, that week calls for one hour of training per day up until the sunday then you might want to do only on average 45 50 minutes of training per day instead to, to dial down the volume just a little bit now, one more thing, uh, with uh, since you're talking about the 40-week plan, I have to say, uh, personally, this is just a, a recommendation, and I'm not a fan of overly long training plans, and uh, in my opinion, 40 weeks is uh, is too long. It's way too long. It's, it's impossible to predict how your abilities will change over the course of such a long time. And uh, coming back a bit to your question about coaching, this is one of our most important responsibilities to assess how you as an athlete are developing and communicate with you and ask you how you feel you are developing and take all of these insights, our own assessments and your feedback into account in providing a constantly up-to-date training planning. And of course, no generic plan, whether it's eight weeks or 40, can completely predict this. But in my opinion, the absolute maximum duration for a training plan should be five, maybe six months or so. But that is only for Ironman training, I think, where you really want to have time to build up a strong uh, foundation of volume. Definitely not for shorter distances. And for beginner athletes, I definitely don't think that training plans should be that long either. So to give an example, I, when I start, started making my generic training plans that I also sell, I I was thinking about how long I think that they ideally should be. And uh, this is my opinion, but... Uh, so, so take it for what it is. It's just my opinion and others have other opinions. But I decided that my my 70.3 plans, they will be 16 weeks. My Ironman plans, uh, I haven't made a complete decision, but I think they will be 20 weeks. Uh, that's that's what, what I think that, will be, that I will be going for. The Olympic plans will be 12 weeks. And uh, the training period before that will be... That really depends on what other races you have, whether you're in the base training phase, just general fitness improvement those sorts of things but specific race training i think that uh, depending on the race distance again and the ability of the athlete 40 weeks sounds too much so what i would recommend that you do is uh, to actually perhaps you would consider your first race of the season an a race and uh, even though you might not have originally planned to do that then you can use an 8 to 16 week plan to train for that a race and then assess again where you are and perhaps then use another slightly longer plan, maybe 20 weeks or so, for the races that you originally planned to have as A races. Of course, I don't know how your races fall here, so these are just, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to give an example of how you might think about this, but I hope that the, the thought process here is clear and I hope that uh, this is useful. Uh, 
thank you again, Claire, for your question. And uh, I hope that uh, I was able to help you. So that's about it for the questions for today. I'll actually link to one previous Q&A episode, Q&A number nine, that I recommend that you also listen to if you haven't already. It's, it's related to the first question from today. And in that Q&A episode, I discuss why I recommend training to pace or power when you do more intense training. And in that particular question, we were talking about threshold training and threshold run workout specifically. But it applies to harder training in general. So, so that Again, it goes. It's uh, separate from what we discussed today when we discussed easy, easier aerobic endurance workouts in zone two, where I said that I agree with John, who was asking the question that uh, it might make sense to train the easier workouts to heart rate rather than power. So I'll link to that in the episode description, so you can check it out. And one house cleaning item before we wrap up. As I said last week as well, some listeners have requested to hear more about my personal training and racing, so there would be. A regular case study with me and I would share my progress, uh, any practical takeaways for uh, athletes of different abilities with different goals. And uh, I would do that if that's something people are interested in. Perhaps I would uh, do one monthly episode and I would do show notes for it with nice charts and figures of my training. And uh, yeah, that, that would be hopefully something that uh, might help you. I would share the highs and the lows. And uh, just to give the context, my main goal will be the 70.3 World Championships in Nice in France in September. But there will be plenty of racing along the way before that as well. So if you would like to see this sort of episode, I still need a few more positive responses before I go ahead and decide to do so. Because I want to make sure that it's something that people are actually interested in. And that means raising your hand and sending me an email or a Facebook message through scientifictriathlon.com. And uh, just let me know that you would like me to do these kinds of episodes. And if I get enough responses, then I will be doing it. Also, if you are enjoying the podcast and you are a long-time listener, in the spirit of uh, the Christmas season, it would mean a lot to me if you could give me two minutes of your time to leave a rating and review for the podcast. Somebody who did that is uh, Arsenal5 in the United States who writes hands down the number one triathlon podcast five stars i have sampled pretty much every triathlon podcast out there and i can say with confidence confidence that this is the most high quality triathlon podcast that exists every episode delivers precise applicable insights that will without a doubt benefit any triathlete young or old beginner or elite thank you michael Thank you, Arsenal5, and uh, nice username. I don't know if, it, uh, if it's a reference to Arsenal Football Club in the United Kingdom, but for anybody interested, that's uh, my favorite football club as well. So maybe you're a fellow, fellow supporter of uh, Arsenal FC. That would be nice if you are. Also, of course, thank you to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. If you are interested in wetsuits, tri-suits, swimskins, buoyancy shorts, goggles, uh, sunglasses, and the likes, check them out. They are the highest quality, the best in the industry, and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code Show, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Stack, that you can find on stackzero.com. That's S-T-A-C, zero spelled out, dot com. And they make the world's quietest indoor bike trainers. And they are affordable to start with, but uh, even more so when you use the promo code Show, all one word, all caps. That will take 20% off your order. And it applies to any of their trainer models, the base, power meter, or the smart trainer model, the Halcyon. 
Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.